Life podcast. We truly hope you'll be inspired and challenged today. Now, let's dive into this message with the family at Pleasant Ridge. We're going to be in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 26 here this morning. And uh, I will not have the scripture up here on the screen just because there's so much here. So I encourage you, if you don't have your Bible, uh, you can uh, find one under your seat there. You can follow along. Um, you know, for the believer in Jesus, we, we celebrate Jesus' uh, resurrection really every Sunday. Um, and when we gather together, we are uh, gathering for the purpose of knowing that Christ has resurrected and uh, perhaps you came this morning, hopefully, to hear a message about the resurrection, and so I don't want to disappoint you about that. And uh, so I wanted to give you a dialogue here this morning that took place between uh, Paul and uh, also King Herod Agrippa II, who was uh, Herod the Great's great-grandson. Great's great-grandson, I guess you'd say that five times fast, a little hard. But um, when we look at the uh, text here, uh, some of you might be a little bit unfamiliar with what's going on. So um, there's, it's kind of spanned over a few chapters prior to this uh, dialogue that uh, Paul has about the resurrection with uh, Herod. Um, and so you might not be familiar with it. And if you are not, I encourage you to read it on your own. You can read about the whole situation, how Paul winds up having this dialogue because he's on his way to Rome, um, and it's all spanned through Acts chapter 21 through 26. But uh, let me give you just a little brief understanding so you know kind of what's going on. Uh, during King Agrippa's second rule, the apostle Paul was engaged in a missionary journey. And as he was doing this, as he was going from town to town, he was preaching and teaching about the resurrection. And uh, he was preaching about Christ. He was preaching about salvation. Uh, many people were coming to know Christ through all of that. But also, Paul gathered quite a few different enemies uh, during this time as well. And uh, there were a lot of opponents to Paul's preaching. And because of this, it, it incited a citywide riot that took place. You can read about that in Acts 21, 27 through 31. Paul was arrested by the Roman commander in charge of the city, and not knowing what to do with a Roman citizen, which uh, Paul was, uh, he had the ability uh, to incite this riot among all these uh, Jews there. He doesn't know what to do, so he brings him before the Sanhedrin, and the priests conspired to kill Paul, but the Roman commander got wind of that plot, and so he had Paul safely transferred to Caesarea that you read about Acts 23:35, And there, while Paul was there in Caesarea, the Jewish leader secured a lawyer named Tertullius, uh, it's Acts 24:1, and accused Paul before the Roman governor Felix to appease the Jews. What does Felix do? He imprisons Paul. And this is where we start seeing Paul writing some of those letters uh, to the churches there. After two years that Paul is there in prison... Paul was brought before Festus, Felix's successor. You read about that in Acts 24, 27, all the way through Acts 25, 1. And then Paul appeals to the emperor, and Festus agrees, intending to send Paul to Rome. 
And a few days later, King Agrippa II and his sister-slash-lover, Bernice, arrived for a visit, and Festus told King Agrippa about Paul's case, admitting that he was at a loss of how to deal with this whole situation. And uh, so he tries to figure out what's going on. You read about that in Acts 25.20. And Agrippa's curiosity was piqued in this whole situation, and he asked to hear what Paul has to say Uh, as you read in Acts uh, 25-22. The next day, Paul was brought before Festus and Agrippa. Bernice and other officials gathered in the audience chamber. Can you kind of picture this? Like, could you imagine if you had an audience with the president? Uh, You're walking in an area, you're in an area where there's a lot of high-ranking government officials in the room. This was what was going on in Paul's case. Uh, So he's there in front of all these people, and uh, they're gathered there, and Festus announced that he needed specific charges against Paul before sending him to Emperor Nero. And in Acts 26 is where we're going to pick up here. King Agrippa II gives Paul leave to speak his mind. He says, I want to hear it. I want to hear what's going on. Tell me what what all this, this stuff is all about. I'm interested. And as you'll see here in our text here this morning, Paul uh, then starts speaking about why he has been held captive and really what what all this is about. Later on, we'll read that Paul was eventually transferred to Rome, where he was placed under house arrest. There again, writing uh, several of the other epistles that uh, we have in our New Testament. And he would eventually be executed in this city in A.D. 68, the final year of Emperor Nero's reign. And so our text here really is the longest uh, defense in the book of Acts that Paul gives about really the resurrection, talking about who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, uh, why he was arrested, and all these types of things. And as Paul speaks, his testimony rests on the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the difference the resurrection really does make. And so here's what Paul is challenging us with us this morning and what I want to challenge you here and for you to take away with you. The resurrection of Christ changes lives. Has it changed yours? The resurrection of Christ changes lives. Has it changed yours? If we truly believe that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, if we truly believe that, our lives will show it. There will be a difference. Paul's defense here makes two points. One, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fact. And secondly, by believing in Christ's resurrection, there will be evidence of that belief. So let's take note here, first of all, number one. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is a historical fact. Reading the dialogue here, Paul knows he's talking to people. Remember, he's in this audience room, and there's people there that are skeptics. They don't believe. And so he doesn't immediately go for the jugular and starts talking about the resurrection because he knows they're just going to go, oh, please, really? Come on, whatever, right? And this is a good way for us to learn also how to talk to others that may not know Christ. Uh, A good way that you'll see what Paul does is he shares his testimony. He talks about how Christ changed his life. 
And so what Paul's focuses on here is the fact that he wants to help him help these people understand who Christ is and what Christ has done. And in fact, when he starts talking about the resurrection, it's interesting, Festus here interrupts to say that he's out of his mind. Look at uh, Acts 26, 24. Uh, Festus says here, and as he was saying these things in defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. And so Paul begins with the possibility of the resurrection in general. Then he describes his own encounter with the risen Lord Jesus and the changes that took place in his life as a result. And then he asserts that his message is completely in line with the Jewish scriptures, of which Agrippa had some knowledge of. Finally, he comes to his point that Jesus died and was raised from the dead. So here's four proofs of Jesus' resurrection that Paul talks about here in Acts chapter 26. Number one, God made it possible. Take a look at Acts chapter 26, verse number eight. So Paul here, he's pleading his case, and he says this to these people. He says, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Why is that so hard to believe, that God would resurrect people from the dead? Only God can do that. And so God made it possible. And so Paul begins by telling of his, his early life in Judaism and identifying himself with the hope that God had promised the Jews, namely the coming of Messiah and his kingdom. He talks about all of this stuff. He says here in uh, uh, verse number three, he says, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews, therefore I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. He says, they have known for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. And so this promise would have been worthless to the Jews that had died in past generations if there was no resurrection of the dead. Yet it was for this Jewish hope that Paul puts these Jewish kinsmen were accusing him, and he says, I have this hope, I have this hope. And so he interjects a statement in verse 8 as saying, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? In other words, if you believe in the God of the Bible, you must necessarily believe that he has the power to raise the dead. And as Paul will go on to assert the fact that God raised up Jesus proves that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Paul's logic here is solid. If you believe in the God who created all things and who spoke life into all existence, you must also admit that God has raised and has the inherent power to raise people from the dead. Here's the second thing. Eyewitness testimony. Take a look at Acts chapter 26, verses 12 through 15. Paul says, In this connection I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me 
and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice say to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And so Paul goes on to recount again his own dramatic encounter with the risen Lord Jesus on the Damascus Road. Believe it or not, there are people who say that Paul only saw a vision or a hallucination, not the actual risen Lord Jesus. And if Paul had been the only one to make such a claim, perhaps there would be room there uh, that we could maybe entertain that, that thought or that uh, argument. However, in 1 Corinthians 15, 5 through 8, Paul states that the risen Lord appeared to Peter and the other apostles as well as over 500 people at one time. And he says that most of whom were still alive when Paul wrote that. J.N.D. Anderson wrote an article called The Resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen to what he had to say about the eyewitness accounts. The most drastic way of dismissing the evidence would be to say that these stories were mere fabrications, that they were pure lies. But so as far as we know, not a single critic today would take such an attitude. In fact, it would really be an impossible position. Think of the number of witnesses, over 500. Think of the character of the witnesses, men and women who gave the world the highest ethical teaching it has ever known and who even on the testimony of their enemies lived it out in their lives. Think of the psychological absurdity of picturing a little band of defeated cowards cowering in an upper room one day and a few days later transformed into a company that no persecution could silence and then attempting to attribute this dramatic change to nothing more convincing than a miserable fabrication they were trying to foist upon the world that simply wouldn't make sense. Someone may be thinking, that's great for those who saw the risen Christ, but I've never seen him. How do you expect me to believe that? Well, I expect you to believe it because there's reasonable evidence to believe. We all believe in things that we cannot see and people that we do not know. For example... Maybe you poured a bowl of cereal this morning. Guess what? You believe that that bowl of cereal that you poured was not going to be laced with any type of uh, harmful things that could kill you. You just believed, hey, I'm going to pour my bowl of cereal and just eat it right away. We trust uh, uh, people when we go to the bank. We put our, our money in the bank. Hopefully not California banks, but we put the money in the bank, Right? And we're trusting that the teller there is going to enter in that money. And you're going to walk away and you're going to go, hey, my money's in the bank. I'm fine. You believe it, right? And so we believe things all the time. We believe that the mechanic who fixed your brakes did a good job. You trust the teller at the bank. In 1 John 5, 9, it says, if we receive the testimony of men... The testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he had borne concerning his son. God will rightly hold us accountable if we reject the eyewitness testimony that he has given us regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Here's the third thing, change lives of the eyewitnesses. I love this, Acts 26, 11. Listen to what Paul has to say here. Actually, we'll back up just a few verses here. He says in verse number nine, Paul again is talking about his life as a Pharisee, one who, uh, as you'll see here, wreaked havoc on the church. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, he said, I cast my vote against them. He said, yeah, I agree with this. Yep, let's kill them. Let's kill them. Let's kill them. Verse number 11, he says, I punish them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and notice this, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul says, my life before Christ was in a raging fury against those who knew, who knew Christ. And so there was a changed life in Paul's life there. And here he is now, a prisoner for the cause of Christ, having endured numerous hardships because of his faith in Christ, and yet there is not a trace of bitterness or hatred in him towards his enemies. How did this man who had been driven by hate change into a man driven now by the love of Christ? The only explanation is that he had seen the risen Savior. The same is true of the transformation in all of the apostles Here's the fourth thing, fulfilled prophecy. Acts 26, 22 through 23 here, Paul affirms that he is saying nothing except that which Moses and the prophets had said would take place. Listen to what Paul has to say here in Acts 26, 22 through 23. He says, to this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Scriptures such as Isaiah 53, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, all of which predicted Messiah's death and resurrection centuries before ever these things ever took place. We're reminded of what Jesus spoke to the scribes in uh, John chapter 5, 39 uh, through 47. Jesus says here, uh, John 5, 39, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? 
And so Paul's point is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a historical event. Such a miracle is possible because God exists. It is proved by eyewitness testimony and by the changed lives of the witnesses. And it is supported by the Hebrew scriptures. So here's the second thing now. Belief in the resurrection will bring about a radical change in our life. Belief in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead will show a life that has been radically transformed by the power of God. The resurrection does make a difference. There will be evidence of our belief. Is there evidence of the resurrection in your life? Has Christ really made a difference in your life? Paul shows this both by his own example and by his own preaching here in this direct passage. And when Paul believed in Jesus Christ, he did a 180 turnaround. I mean, total transformation. Here he is, right? Like breathing out threatenings against the church. And now what is he doing? He's proclaiming Christ. What a difference, right? Huge difference. And if you truly believe that Jesus Christ is the risen Savior, you cannot remain the same. I want you to note four things about the change that takes place in Paul's words here. Take a look at verse number 18. So here's Paul. He's, he's giving his defense here before all these high officials. And he's talking about how Christ changed his life and what God has commissioned him to do. Look at verse number 18. Paul says here, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. And so one of the changes that, that should take place because of the resurrection in your life is a change in our mind from darkness to light. Apart from Christ, all people, no matter how brilliant their minds are, are darkened in their understanding. That's what Ephesians 4.18 says. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 states that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. People in this naturally fallen condition cannot grasp the awesome holiness of God. That is something that we are missing today, that God is holy. And when we come into his presence, it really reveals what we are. And so a person who does not know Christ Their minds are darkened. They do not understand the holiness of God. They do not grasp the holiness of God. Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should what? Shine unto them, right? If you ask Paul before his conversion whether he believed that God is holy, I'm sure that he would have answered, of course. He knew that fact intellectually, But only when the light brighter than the sun shone from heaven did Paul realize that God was far more holy than he had ever imagined. Previously, Paul thought that his own good deeds as a Pharisee would qualify him for dwelling in God's presence in heaven. 
But the instant the light of God's holiness struck him in the ground, Paul, like Isaiah, was undone. He realized that his own holiness was like filthy rags in the sight of God. At the same instant, Paul saw that he was far more sinful than he had ever imagined. Again, if you had asked Paul before his conversion if he were a sinner, he probably would have even replied, well, of course I am. All men are sinners. He probably would have thought, I'm glad that I'm not like the Gentile sinners. I tithe, I pray, I fast. But when the light from heaven blinded him, Paul instantly realized that he could never qualify for heaven by his own good deeds. Further, he realized that he needed atonement for his many sins and that all of his supported good deeds could never pay for his many evil deeds. Years after Paul's conversion, Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am chief. He did not say, I was chief, used to be chief, but I am chief. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, wrote, When a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. So this change in the way we think and behave is not just a one-time experience at the moment of conversion. It is the ongoing experience of every believer who walks in God's holy light. Is that not what 1 John 5 teaches us, right? Or 1 John 1 tells us about the fact that if we have fellowship, right, with God the Father, right, there is this continual cleansing of our sin, Turning from our old desires, thoughts, actions, putting off the old, putting on the new is what Ephesians 4 teaches us. If sin and Satan blind people so that they cannot see the light of God's truth regarding his holiness and their own sin, how can they change? How do we change? The answer is only God can change them. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said light shall shine out of the darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so God brings this change through the preaching of the gospel. Here's the second thing. Change in our master from Satan to God. Look again in Acts 26, verse number 18. Paul says this, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Colossians 1.13 states that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Everyone that is born, everyone that is born. How many of you in here were born? Okay, that's all of you. All right. Everyone that is born is born into this world, and you are born into the dominion, the kingdom of Satan. You're born into darkness. 2 Timothy 2.26 says, And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him 
to do his will. Jesus describes our condition as being slaves of sin in John 8, 34. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. So how can anyone break free from such a strong master as Satan? He says, it's the power of Satan, right? That's powerful. But let me tell you something. God is more powerful, is he not? How can we break free? John 8, 36, Jesus says, So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Paul says in Colossians 1, 13 through 14, And that God rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness. When I think of that word transfer, I almost kind of start thinking of like, you know, like Star Trek, you know, like, beam me up, whoop, you know. You've been transferred, right, into the kingdom of his Son. And so it is God alone who can free us from slavery to sin and make us slaves of righteousness is what Romans 6, 17 through 23 teaches us. So this means that if you have not experienced a definite change in your life, a change from masters, from sin and Satan to holiness and God, you better examine yourself. That's what scripture tells us to do, right? To be examining ourselves whether or not we are in the faith, whether or not if we really do know Christ, whether or not if there really has been a change in our lives. Here's the third thing. Change in our relationship, forgiveness now, and sanctification. Look what he says again, Acts 26, 18. He says, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those, I love this, who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul here continues talking about the changes and a result of believing in the resurrection is first of all forgiveness of sins. The just due reward of our sins has been paid for by Christ's death on the cross. He took, our, God, he took God's wrath for us. He was our substitute. And so we can now have the forgiveness of sin because of Christ's sacrifice. Secondly, the relationship, that relationship is supposed to change the way that we live. Notice what he says here, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Sanctified by faith in me. What does that mean? That word sanctified means to be set apart. We are set apart for a specific purpose. What is that purpose? To live a life of holiness. To deny ourselves, to deny ungodliness, to cling to Christ, to desire him, to grow in Christ. That Christ would become so precious as those who believe, right? And so that's what God's, what God's word here is telling us. He's saying we are sanctified by faith in him. Is Christ precious to you? That's the change that Christ brings. According to the New Testament, all the benefits of salvation are to be found in Christ. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.30 that Christ is our wisdom, our righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. And so we experience the sanctification because of the relationship that we have with 
Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit is what 1 Corinthians 15.45 teaches us and also Ephesians 3.17 teaches us. I encourage you to read through Romans 6, which is such a powerful uh, pronouncement of our sanctification through Christ. And through all it, Paul is like unfolding this whole thing of like what Christ has done, right? That we have died to sin, we've been buried with Christ, and we've been resurrected with Christ. And it's so powerful to think about like what Christ has done in our lives. And it sounds great. It's like, man, this is awesome. Look, I've died to sin. I've been resurrected with new life in Christ. That's great. That's awesome. But then he goes on to later on tell us how to actually live out what he tells us. And he tells us these whole things here that we are now supposed to yield ourselves, yield our members. Oh, I think we got it right up there, right? Offer your every part of yourselves to God as instruments of righteousness. Romans 6, he tells us that we are supposed to be yielding our members now to Christ. And we are no longer to be yielding our members as slaves of unrighteousness. And so that leads us here to this last point here. Change in our behavior. Deeds that prove your repentance. Look at verse number 20. Paul's continuing on here. And he says, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. And so Paul tells of his obedience to this heavenly vision. He kept declaring both to Jews and Gentiles that they should be performing these deeds that prove their repentance, right? Faith without works is what? Dead. We're not saying that you do works in order to uh, obtain salvation, but we're saying that because of salvation, there will be evidence of that, and there will be deeds that show your repentance. What does that mean? It means that biblical repentance is not just a change of mind or an intellectual decision. It is a turning of the whole person from sin to God, resulting in a continued life of obedience to God from the heart is what Romans 6.17 clearly teaches us. So let's wrap this up. Take a look at verse number 27. Paul personally addresses Agrippa with the question, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And before Agrippa can respond, Paul answers his own question, I know that you do. Yes, Agrippa believed the prophets in an intellectual sort of way, but it made no difference in the way that he lived. Now, Paul had Agrippa in a corner, and if he denied his belief in the prophets, he would lose face with the Jews. If he agreed with Paul, he could see that the next question would be what? Why don't you believe in Jesus Christ as the risen Savior? And so he wasn't ready to go there. He wasn't ready to to really grapple with with that question. And so he skates out of this embarrassing dilemma with a mildly sarcastic, humorous dodge. And he says this in verse 28, in a short time, you will persuade me to be a Christian. And so to save face in front of his pompous crowd, Agrippa threw away his opportunity to receive God's forgiveness and gift of eternal life. Has the resurrection of Christ made a difference in your life? Is it continually making a difference? Let's pray together.
If you're interested in more information about our church or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, visit our website at lifeattheridge.church.